He's already been dead and it's messed with his head. It's John's post-life crisis. Welcome to John's post-life crisis. I am John Johnston, founder of CornNation.com, your Nebraska's Cornhusker site of mental health awareness. This episode, we're talking with Dr. Stephen Wengel. Dr. Wengel is a psychiatrist with the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha, Nebraska. We will be talking about the mental health aspect of COVID-19, the pandemic. Uh, thank you for joining me, Dr. Wengel. Can you get us, get, give us a little bit, bit of background on UNMC and what you do there? Yes. Well, thanks for uh, the invitation, incidentally, and the chance to, to talk about this. So I'm a, I'm a geriatric psychiatrist by trade. Uh, there's not very many of us around, but I, I was trained many years ago to take care of older adults with mental health problems, people over 65 uh, that have depression or anxiety or schizophrenia, that sort of thing, as well as things like dementia, you know, Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia. So that's my main clinical role. I've been doing that for about 29 years. But in addition to that, um, about two years ago, the university asked me to take on a new part-time job. Uh, I, I work full-time for the university, but I, I, I see patients about half-time. The other half, I do wellness-related activities. So they gave me a new title. I'm the assistant vice chancellor for campus wellness for both UNMC and UNO. And so that's a lot of words, but what does that really mean? My job, I think, mainly is to... Um, try to help our students, you know, medical students, nursing students, pharmacy students, and so forth, as well as our faculty and staff, uh, you know, handle stress better. So I do a lot of talks on um, resilience and trying to lessen the effects of stress. Um, and I was doing that again for the last couple of years, long before the pandemic. But of course, with the pandemic, guess what? We're all under a lot of stress, I think. It's affecting everybody in our uh, our um, country, but around the world, of course, in different ways. Um, and so we've had to kind of redesign the work we do a little bit to try to try to help our students and faculty and staff, as well as our patients, um, try to cope with this. It's just a you know, it's a unique situation, as you know. It's getting to be kind of a kind of trite almost to say it's un unprecedented, but it really is unprecedented. I don't think any of us have been through something like this before. So we've been at this pandemic for months now. By the way, the wellness thing. So you get to basically work with the youngest and the oldest. That's, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, that's a great point, right? Yeah, I get to work with young folks like our students, our medical students, nursing students and all. And, and in my clinical world, yes, get to work with people anywhere from 65 up to 100. I actually have patients over 100 years old. So yeah, both ends of the continuum there. Well, I was going to start with, what have you seen have been the most detrimental effects from a mental health perspective of this pandemic so far? Because so far, because we're, we don't know how long this is going to go on. Right, right. Yeah, that's a great point. I think, you know, six months now, at least at the time we're, we're talking here, um, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, really, it's really taking its toll. And I think it's largely... Um, having to do with isolation, like social isolation and loneliness, um, for one thing. Obviously, there are other, other big impacts for a lot of people. Unfortunately, a lot of people have lost their jobs or have had hours cut back because of the, uh, you know, the hits to the economy. 
um, people that work in um, thing, in healthcare, certainly my line of work in healthcare, it's affected a lot of folks, especially the frontline providers that work with um, COVID positive patients and the stress that that brings. Um, uh, but but not just them, of course, too. Teachers, you know, as we as we sit here talking today, you know, the K through 12 uh, school system has just opened up in the last few weeks, as well as the colleges. Uh, so everybody, I think, is struggling. Teachers, parents, students, everybody's struggling trying to figure out how to make this work and stay safe. Um, and it just takes its toll. I think this constant change. Uh, you know, the rules changed. Uh, are masks good or masks bad? Well, now we realize masks are a good thing. Normally, I, you know, obviously I'm just sitting in my office with the door closed, so I don't have a mask on right now. But normally, I guarantee you, as soon as I leave that office door and I go out into the hallway, I've got a mask on every minute of every day. I believe in them. But, you know, we didn't know that a couple of months ago. Um, so the rules change. Um, the state of Nebraska is now opening up again because our, our, our rates are relatively low. And that's good because now we can get back to some semblance of normality, but we still have to be really vigilant. So anyway, that constant change, you know, kind of keeping track of the rules. What are the rules today compared to a week ago? It's hard. You know, we're adaptable. It's good in some hands, you know, so stress is an interesting thing. We all need some. Think about uh, weight training, for example. So think about, you know, normally you'd be talking football probably and weight training and, you know, the weight room and all that. Uh, you have to stress your muscles to make them bigger. And so stress isn't all a bad thing. So we all need a little bit of stress at least or else we don't improve. We don't get better at what we do. Our muscles don't grow stronger or whatever. So a little stress is a good thing for you, but too much stress, not such a good thing. You know, it uh, causes a lot of anxiety and, and sometimes depression and, you know, takes its toll in many different ways. So I mentioned that you're working with the youngest and the oldest. Do you see differences in how age affects people in dealing with the stress and dealing with the anxiety that we're going through, the uncertainty? Yeah, what a, again, I, I think that's a really important question. Um, I, I think so, yeah, I would say so. Um, so older adults, my, the, the, my clinical population, the folks I see when I'm wearing my doctor hat, excuse me, um, on one hand, you know, what you think about, if you think about the average 75 or 85 year old, they've lived through a lot of stuff. To make it to that age, they've lived through some tough times and they've overcome them. Um, they've had losses. They, they've lost loved ones and friends. Uh, they have probably battled one or more health scares of their own and, and people around them. They may have lived through natural disasters and economic problems and so forth. And they've lived to tell the tale. And I think when you live to tell the tale through those things, it does make you stronger and, and kind of helps you put things in perspective. Whereas, you know, uh, somebody that's younger that hasn't lived through something that stressful, this can seem really, really super overwhelming. So on one hand, I think older adults maybe have a perspective that the rest of us don't always have. On the other hand, many older adults, not all, but, but some at least are, um, you know, more vulnerable to some of the problems here because they are socially isolated. Somebody that lives alone, for example, and may be afraid to go out of the house uh, and go shopping and such, whereas a middle-aged person might not to have that problem or a younger adult might not worry so much about that. Uh, older adults living in long-term care settings like nursing homes and assisted living places, on one hand, they've got other people around them, but, uh, but, but 
on the other, yet the other hand, they may be confined to their room. I was, uh, I did Zoom visits this morning to a nursing home that I, I provide care to. And I, you know, I think almost half the patients I saw were talking about the stress of not being able to go outside, not being able to have visits with their family. I mean, they're doing it through Zoom and their tablets and their smartphones and all that, which is great, but it's not the same. It's not the same as being in the same room. And some of them are talking about, gee, I've got grandchildren uh, that, it, that they haven't seen yet. They've never met because they can't do it, you know. So it's, it's, it's a challenge. So when this pandemic first started, there was this kind of an attitude that, okay, we're going to do this lockdown thing for maybe a couple months and then everything will be fine. And it's pretty clear now that it's been a few months and it keeps going on and on and on and on. And it's going to be going on for a while. We keep hearing that, oh, there's treatments coming. Oh, there's a vaccine coming. Those treatments and those vaccines will take a long time before they're mass produced. And that's after they're you know, been okay to say that humans can have them. Right. If we'd have started this with the idea, this is about expectations. If we would have started this with the idea and everybody would have said to themselves, we're going to be in this and it's going to take a while. Do you Mm -hmm. think the stress would be different or the Mm -hmm. attitudes would be different? That people would be, well, less anxious, less anxious, less stressed, Mm -hmm. Do expectations have a lot to do with it? Yeah. Well, you know, I think I think they do. And um, you know, again, thinking about my clinical clinical hat, you know, one of the forms of psychotherapy or talk therapy that we do a lot is called cognitive behavior therapy. You know, you have people talk back to those negative thoughts that we all have, um, whether it's about yourself, like, okay, I failed this thing at work or this thing didn't go well, so I'm a loser and I'm always going to fail at stuff. That would be an idea of a negative thought that you might get stuck in your head that we can teach you to talk back to. Um, so part of cognitive therapy, and in fact, most forms of psychotherapy is setting realistic expectations. Because yeah, if, you're, if your goal is like this, okay, if I'm going to, the only way I can pos- possibly be happy is if I make this much money, I have this big of a house, I have this perfect of a relationship, whatever, all these unrealistic things, and your real life is down here, you're always going to be unhappy because there's a big gap. So you're right, you can either try to elevate the, the reality or you can bring, <laughs> bring the, the target, you know, the goal down to reality a little closer. So I, I think that's really, I think you bring up a really great point again, and I think setting expectations and making them realistic is really, really smart. Um, and you're right, this thing, again, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't have any insider information, even though I work at a world-class medical center and we have uh, amazing people that work in research and in clinical work with infectious disease. And these are like, you know, international experts in this. I don't have any insider information about when, when it's gonna be quote over and what does being over really mean? What's it gonna look like? What is the new normal gonna look like and all that? But I do think it is safe to say, as you're implying or saying, is that it's going to go on a while. It has gone on a while. It's going to keep going on a while. And I think you're right. We just have to be realistic. Um, Because, yeah, if you do, if you do, if if we go into this thinking, okay, just one more month and we're clear, you know, I think we've gotten past that. Hopefully most people have, but, but if not, I think we need to get past that that mindset because it'll just be disposed by Thanksgiving or by, or by Halloween, boy, we're, we're back to normal. Mm, That's, that's going to set us up for disappointment. 
I think we have to sort of go into this with our eyes wide open and figure out how to how to adapt, not you know, not not um, not hoping for things that are unrealistic. So right now we've seen all these shutdowns. We've seen people isolated, uh, job loss. Uh, I quit drinking in April Mm -hmm. and I started walking four miles a day, which for me to quit drinking was honestly uh, shocking to everybody around me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I guess I just brought that up, but there's, there's going to be long-term consequences from this. Do you have any idea of what you think those might be? Yeah. And what I, what I tell people, I, you know, normally I would, like you said, I'd be talking about college football or college volleyball. We speculate all the time. So speculate away. Mm. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I guess, uh, well, first of all, incidentally, congratulations on uh, two big things that you're doing for your health there, the, the drinking and the walking, I mean, or the exercise, man, that's great. And, you know, one thing I should say, maybe talk about speculating I mentioned, for example, stress is not all bad. I remind people when I give stress talks and stress management talks, stress is a five-letter word, five-letter word, not a four-letter word. So stress isn't all bad. Some stress is good. Same way here, the pandemic, boy, it's, it's, I don't want to sugarcoat things in any way and say everything's great and going to be rosy. It's, it's a bad thing and it's caused a lot of problems and it's going to keep causing some problems. Having said that, some good is coming out of it, just as you have done in your life, I think a lot of people are using this time to kind of reflect a little bit and say, you know, what's really important to me? Uh, reconnecting with family. I think a lot of people are reconnecting with family members and friends maybe they haven't talked to in a while. I think that's a positive thing, and I hope that continues. I hope that isn't just one of those things we do for a while, and then eventually when the dust does finally settle, we stop doing that. I hope that's that's something that in, endures. Um, what are the other long-term consequences? So there will be some positive long-term consequences, I, I do believe. Um, in my line of work, again, in, ment- in, uh, in healthcare, um, we have switched to Zoom visits for taking care of our patients, especially in psychiatry. You know, I don't absolutely have to be in the same room with my patients at the same time. I don't generally do a lot of physical examination where I have to listen to their heart with a stethoscope and do things that other physicians might have to do. I do mostly talking and observing. I can do that with Zoom. And that's 100% of the way I see patients now is through Zoom. And the rules have changed during the pandemic to make it easier for us to do it. They've relaxed some of the rules that used to get in the way. I hope that endures too, because I think a lot of patients are finding this to be very convenient. They don't have to leave their home. They don't, some patients, you know, what about a patient uh, in, uh, that's 300 miles away in, West, in central Nebraska that wants to come see me? come on over, you know, it's, 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 <laughs> it's, right. it doesn't, from my point of view, seeing you, whether you're in Omaha or you're 300 miles away, it doesn't matter to me because it's all the same way. And it used to be they'd had to drive in those six hours or whatever. They don't have to do that anymore. But even if you live here in town, uh, you don't have to come to a waiting room and be around potentially sick people. You know, you don't have to, you can, you can, we can see you from the, the, um, from, from your own home. That's something we were not able to do six months ago. The rules would not permit us to do patient care to a patient that was in their own home. So I think that will be a positive thing that endures. Having said that, what are, what are some of the negatives? Well, we, again, we don't know, or at least I don't know, what the long-term economic consequences are going to be. You know, um, all right. We, um, we, 
that's something we're going to have to figure out. And uh, again, I'm not, that's kind of way above my pay grade, but it's clearly super important. I think healthcare, I mentioned some of the changes that I think are happening there and I think will probably endure. Um, and I mentioned again, societally and just kind of socially, I hope we, I hope it helps us continue to be reconnected with people. I think as a society, we've kind of gotten disconnected from one another um, before the pandemic. I'm talking before the pandemic, you know, we're so busy. Uh, parents with young kids, they've got so many extracurricular activities. Great. Sports are great. I'm not, I'm not dissing sports in any way, but sometimes, you know, families before the pandemic were running hither and yon all night, you know, every night of the week going to different places and families don't have time to have dinner together. Well, guess what? Families have time for dinner together now. <laughs> they don't have a lot of other things to do. I'm seeing people out on the trail. I live near, I'm fortunate enough to live near a, you know, a hiker or biker trail. And I'm seeing a whole lot more people out there than before the pandemic, uh, including families with young kids. What a great thing, getting outside, getting some exercise together. I hope that endures. So again, I guess I'm trying to paint, yeah, there's going to be clearly some negative consequences that are going to endure. We, and again, from a mental health point of view, what about depression? What about, uh, you know, anxiety? How, what are the lasting effects? We don't know. We don't know. Uh, but I think they're going to be there. But there will you be would, some positive things too. You would think that there'd be this, I don't know, like a break, you know what I mean? There's always a bell curve, but you'd think yeah. that those people who have resilience built in, or understand resilience or are going to become more resilient, but those people who are vulnerable yeah. are going to be way more vulnerable. So yeah. there's going to be this, yeah. you know, where yeah. they, there was this middle ground, it seems like there's going to be a much more difference between the highs and the lows. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it does. You know, what? I, one thing I've been thinking about a lot in the last month or two is the way the pandemic has really exposed problems or put light on problems that were always there, you know, socioeconomic problems. Uh, again, we're talking a lot about systemic racism these days and things like that. That's not a new problem, but I think the pandemic is maybe highlighting some existing problems. Um, so yeah, certainly if you have um, stresses from your socioeconomic status, for example, you're going to be, you, you may have fewer tools in your toolbox to cope with things people that live alone. I mentioned older adults living alone, for example. Uh, no, again, not to say every older person that lives alone is lonely, because that's not necessarily, but a lot of them are. And those folks, uh, you know, people like me, I'm fortunate enough to be married and have a family and all. And so I've, I'm quite fortunate that way. I have sort of a built-in social network, but not everybody does. Um, I'm healthy enough. I can get in my car and go for a drive if I get bored or something, but a lot of people can't do that. They don't have that transportation option or whatever. And so I think you're right. It does highlight um, those, those uh, discrepancies, I guess. Um, is there a, so going back one last thing, I'm sorry, but the other thing is that you're kind of, kind of talking about, I think too, is what about folks that start out with this with that already have say a mental health problem, you know, depression, for example, or schizophrenia or bipolar disorder um, it can make those things worse. One thing we worried about early on, I certainly did, uh, was, you know, like the availability of medication. You know, you remember back to the early days of this, when we couldn't get enough hand sanitizer and things like that, people started worrying about, well, what about medication? What if the supply line for medication gets cut off? Thankfully, it hasn't happened. I'm, I'm, I'm ha for most, most part, uh, you know, most commonly used medications are still widely available. 
But that was kind of a worry early on. What if you have schizophrenia and you can't get your medication, that sort of thing. Is there a, is there a particular demographic that has suffered more or less during this? I, 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 those, those, those studies are being done right now. And, and they're, I don't know off the top of my head, the specific statistics other than to say that some of the recent work is demonstrating that there are some, some differences that um, again, when you think about vulnerable populations, again, people of lower socioeconomic, um, uh, you know, demographics are, are at higher risk. I think, um, I think there, it is highlighting some racial differences too. Um, and I, I think that's, it's still being fleshed out, but I think those, it is gonna, it is gonna kind of highlight some of those, you know, some of those demographic changes. Thinking, uh, thinking about children again and, and the school system, um, many, many, I can't remember how many, I think it's something like 20 million kids in the country depend on school lunches or breakfasts, you know, for their, you know, for a reliable, nutritious meal per day. and. If schools are not open, they miss that, for example. So there's a lot of kind of unintended consequences. So, you know, there's a lot, and you know, I don't envy school superintendents and governors and others that have to make those decisions. Uh, do you open a school or not? And how do you make it work? Because, you know, there's, there's risks and benefits both directions. So what would you recommend to people to keep their, you said, you mentioned at the start of this, that you're in charge of wellness yeah. for young people. Yeah. Which I can tell you when I was at 20, wellness meant I go party a yeah. lot, yeah. Yeah. right? And now I can't do that. So yeah. not only just the young people, but people might, like me, I work in IT, I work remotely, and I work at home almost all the time now. Yeah. Uh, that's quite a different discrepancy in recommendations on what would you do to keep me mentally well. But yeah. if you can give some pointers, yeah, please. Yeah. For sure, and again, I think that's a great a great thing to to talk about. So, interestingly, before the pandemic, I, I used to talk a lot about what I call the three R's of wellness. You know, relationships, routines, and relaxation. Uh, sometimes a fourth R, reflection. It's kind of like you know, refl I, I think of relaxation and reflection kind of go together. Three or four R's. Interestingly, though, after the pandemic, guess what I talk about? I still talk about those same three R's, and I think they're really kind of the keys to this. So I think relationships, again, super important. We are social animals. Uh, when we are around people that we like or love, we produce a, a brain chemical called oxytocin that you may have heard about. Some people call it the love hormone. And the more you're around people, uh, especially people you like, the more oxytocin you crank out. And physical touch brings that out too, even more than just being in the same room. Well, guess what? Right now we can't do a lot of those things. Uh, so we have to settle for virtual visits, but that's still better than nothing. One thing I would say too, when it comes to communicating that uh, it's better to uh, do things that are done in real time. So in other words, a video visit or a phone call in real time is better than texting or emailing because even though we're not in the same room, this real-time communication seems to be healthier than asynchronous communication, which is kind of interesting. I mean, it's still not bad. And I still send texts and emails, and I'm sure you do too. And nothing against IT, but I, but I do think live conversation is always right. best. Uh, so anyway, that's the relationship piece, staying connected as best we can and following the rules, but staying connected. So that's the first R. So routines. Um, 
So you mentioned some of the coping strategies that some people do, not just young people. Sometimes we, yeah, partying, sometimes drinking too much, sometimes using illicit drugs. Those are coping mechanisms, in fact, because they do make, think, make you feel better in the short run. So that is, in fact, a coping strategy. It's maybe not the best coping strategy, of course, because we all know that, you know, drugs and too much alcohol can, can lead to very serious consequences. So those are not coping strategies I recommend, of course. But what are some good coping strategies? One thing I'm really focusing a lot on with healthcare providers and our students are is sleep. I think sometimes we undervalue how much of a role sleep or sleep deprivation plays. Um, they've done studies with college students that are not anxious, and then they put them in an experimental um, uh, protocol where they sleep deprive them for a little while, and then they ask them to rate their mood, and they, they start getting anxious. So not just sleepy, but they actually get anxious if they get sleep deprived. So if you're feeling kind of stressed out, one thing I tell people is try getting an extra half hour, or an hour of sleep. You know, maybe I think sometimes one of the coping strategies we use is, is immersing ourselves in media. And again, I'm, I do the same. I'm not, I'm not a Luddite. You know, I'm not saying don't use IT, but maybe too much of, too much of a good thing is not a good thing. So too much web browsing instead of sleeping, too much social media, et cetera too much news consumption incidentally because you know you watch the news and it's it can really stress anybody out right so i tell people it's i think of news media i think of the media right now is like a really powerful medication if you need that powerful medication and we all do we need to stay informed take your medication don't overdose on your medication because too much of a good thing is not a good thing so anyway i tell people you might want to you know throttle back on your um your consumption of media, whatever that is for maybe an extra, you know, cut back a half hour and go to get an extra half hour of sleep. So start with that. So that's one of the routines. Exercise, you mentioned, I'm a big believer in that. I try to get, you know, half hour to an hour of exercise uh, most nights if I can. Uh, I personally bicycle because my, you know, but uh, that's my thing, but whatever your thing is, it doesn't matter as long as you get out and move. Being out of doors incidentally, is really good for the brain and the rest of the body. They did a study in Great Britain. They found that uh, if you spend about two hours a week, two hours a week outside, whether you're moving or even just sitting there on your porch having coffee, two hours a week seems to be kind of the sweet spot and your health and your well-being will tend to improve. So there you go. Now, obviously, if you get out and walk at the same time, that's what, 15 minutes a day or something like that. But if you do, if you do both, if you get exercise while you're outside, take advantage of this nice fall weather, you know, uh, you get two for one, you get a double word score, as one of my mentors says, you know, and like it's a Scrabble game, you get a double word score if you do both together. So anyway, so sleep, exercise, you know, healthy diet. Sometimes one of our coping strategies is maybe overindulging in the comfort food. Again, I'm not here to say don't have ice cream or don't have your favorite thing, but you might want to kind of watch that because sometimes we overindulge and I, I know how that goes. There's some evidence now that if you kind of push more fruits and vegetables, really try to get five to seven servings a day, uh, you will tend to be somewhat happier. It kind of changes the microbiome in the GI tract, which actually has some brain effects maybe we're thinking. Who knew? Who knew? Um, so anyway, so those are simple things, you know, so routines. So that's the second hour. The last one is reflection or relaxation. I, I teach a lot of my students how to meditate. It's actually not really hard to learn, but you got to practice it. One real simple thing, though, if you don't want to spend 10 or 20 minutes a day meditating, one real simple thing I tell people to do is to slow down your breathing. If you're anxious, it actually really makes a difference if you take slow, deep breaths. And what I tell people to do is count to six, not out loud, just inside your head. Count to six as you take a breath in, hold it for about a second, 
count to six on the way out. And that's hard on the way out, counting to six, because we don't normally breathe that slowly. You do that about four breaths in a row. So six seconds in, six seconds out, times four breaths. You will, you will tend to feel calmer for a while. It's simple, you can do it while you're driving, you can do it uh, in a movie theater. If you go to movies, you can do it whenever. It's pretty simple to do, and it kind of uh, tends to de-stress your nervous system a little bit. This, this, oh, one last uh, thing. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, they, I was going to say that last thing about relaxation and breathing, you know, it might be, uh, people might want to know that so they can get through this election, <laughs> let alone the pandemic, you know? Yeah, no kidding. Uh, interesting times, for sure. Interesting <laughs> yeah. times. Uh, one last R, though, that I kind of forgot. So I mentioned reflection. What the heck does reflection mean? Well, that means, you know, sometimes just thinking about what matters to you, what are your goals for life? Because, in the you know, we still have to have goals for the long term, even though your goals for right now might be kind of temporarily postponed. You know, gee, I want to go on a cruise in December. Well, you may not be able to. So a short-term goal like that, that might have to be postponed. But still a long-term goal. I want to get a degree in such and such, or I want to ultimately live in this other part of the country, whatever it is, you know, those long-term goals are still really important. But, so that's part of reflection, but here's a simple piece of reflection. Keeping a gratitude journal, a gratitude journal. There's actually a whole science on gratitude. And normally when you think of gratitude or thankfulness, you know, I think, thinking ahead, you know, uh, Thanksgiving's a couple months away, I think, right? It's been October, yeah, so it's a couple months away. But you know, Thanksgiving can be every day. And it turns out there's a science, there's a number of scientists that have studied this. There's one in particular in, in Sacramento, California, that's done a lot of work on this. And he's found that if you write down, and it really makes, you got to write it down, not just think about it. If you write down three things you're grateful for once a week, twice a week, something like that. After you do that a while, your brain starts changing in some good ways. And it helps you start looking for positive things around you. Because right now it's real easy to see the negatives. There's all kinds of negatives around us. But there's also a lot of positives, but our brains filter out the positives sometimes when we're under stress. But if you start writing down the positives, it actually changes the way your brain perceives the world. So keeping a yep. gratitude journal, I personally do that. So once a week, I write down three things and I try to come up with three new things every week. And it kind of forces me to look at the world a little differently. Do, do I have to actually write them with a pencil? It, it actually them? matters. It actually does matters. it. Yeah, it, it actually now typing. Some people say typing might. So typing might be okay. Again, I'm, I'm not a you know, I like computers too. So again, I'm not an anti IT guy. But doing something where you have to take your thoughts and turn them into a physical action typing or writing actually is is kind of the secret, because it makes your brain process the information differently than if you just think it or say it. There's something different about the act of writing things down. They found, for example, students that are uh, in class, if you underline things in your notes or in a book, it doesn't really help you retain information. But if you hand write some notes, like what the professor is saying, or you hand write some things that you took out of a book, you, you remember it a lot better. So there's something about writing that slows down your brain and makes it process information a little differently. Oh my God, my, my writing looks like a 90 year old meth addict dementia patients. I, I never write anything. Actually, here, I'll show you this. This is a voice recorder. Mm. And I have a, a microphone I wear when I walk my dog and I do journaling that way and then oh, I good. transcribe it. Yeah. So that's how I do it. And I keep track of my life. And uh, well, then I go back and look at, my God, you're a horrible person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I have one more question, one more question, and then I'll let you go because it sounds like people are after you. You're a busy guy, but uh, 
Oh, do you think that the mental health aspects of this pandemic have been largely ignored in favor of reporting on infections, masks, and and death, mm -hmm. and you know the negativity or the, I suppose the more sensational parts of yeah. the pandemic. Yeah, I, I would say they have not been highlighted. Maybe is the way I would frame it. Maybe that's my again more uh, my, my way of. Um, interpreting it. I think, you know, especially when the pandemic was first hitting our shores and we're still just trying to understand how is it transmitted and what are the symptoms like and all that and what, you know, how do we keep people alive if they do get it and all that. Um, I, th I think necessarily we had to focus on the biology of the thing and, and the infectious disease elements. So I think mental health pieces are clearly super important and, you know, that's what's particularly important to me. But so I, so I don't know if they've been, I don't think they've been deliberately, you know, overlooked or whatever, but they have not been highlighted for sure, because I think they're, I think folks were just trying to figure the darn thing out and trying to keep people alive. But now that we've, now that we're getting a better handle, again, we haven't, we clearly haven't figured the whole thing out. And, you know, how do you, how do you prevent it? How do you treat it? We, we know a lot more than we did six months ago, but I think now we really are starting to see more of the mental health aspects. You know, but think about that too. It's, it's, not, it's not that different from other um, uh, like natural disasters, like a flood. Think about the wildfires in the West Coast, you know, all that sort of thing, or tornadoes. You know, you always worry about survival first. So if a tornado comes through town, you know, let's survive, let's 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 get through that. We'll worry about the other aftermath later. And so I think that's kind of where we're at with this. Now we're starting to become more aware of the mental health aspects um, as we get at least some kind of handle on the physical aspects of it. I've seen that play out before with other, um, you know, other situations like this. I've brought this up before. I know he said one more question. Yeah, yeah. I think our, our problem when we look at medical problems is we've seen episodes of Dr. House. Mm -hmm. And in Dr. House, there's some person comes to the hospital and they have a malady or, you know, whatever the technical term is. Mm -hmm. And in 45 minutes or 50 minutes, Dr. House solves the issue and finds some amazing illness no one's ever heard of in their lives and it's all wrapped up in a bow and they send the patients on and Dr. House himself is a wreck, but that's part of the show. <laughs> but, you know, the packaging, yeah. and that's not the only show. When you look at doctor shows, they're packaged into yeah. a segment yeah. and we go, yeah. oh, you show up, the doctor diagnoses you perfectly and you go on your way. And, and of course, there's this implication of yeah. happily ever after. And yeah. that is yeah. that is none of this. Right. And that goes back to what I said about expectations. Yeah. So I think it's a real problem when we look yeah. at medical problems in healthcare. Yeah, right. Because rarely do we wrap things up with a bow so neatly. Or, you know, I think a situation comedy is, you know, we got a 30-minute situation comedy comes down to, what, 22 minutes of actual content. And so, and in, inevitably, there's a there's some dramatic element or a conflict and but by golly by 22 minutes yeah you know they've solved it you know by that last commercial break they've they figured it out right or you're right a medical mystery like house yeah we get it all wrapped up uh, and we figured it out and you're right not realistic and that's that's true for anything that I can think of or there's very few there are a few illnesses that have been figured out you know and kind of solved, you know, certain infectious diseases that we, that 
pretty much don't exist anymore. Certain surgical conditions where, you know, an operation fixes the thing, you never have to worry about again, certainly. But most medical conditions, most psychiatric conditions have some degree of, you know, chronicity to them. And certainly this pandemic is, the more we learn about it too, right? The more we're hearing that, yeah, most people thankfully have mild cases, get better quickly, go on with their lives. Some people not so much, they recover and then they still have fatigue, they still have headaches, they still have whatever. Um, and, you know, that's biology for you. Biology is messy and complicated. All right, I, we're going to end there. I hope that uh, I can have you back at some point when Love we you. learn more about what's going on and maybe we understand outcomes and, yeah. and maybe we can do another wellness talk because I Love think to. everybody Love could you. use that. I, I agree. I'd, I'd, I'd love to anytime. Yeah, that'd be great. All right. Thank you. Thank thanks you. to Dr. Wengel for joining me. Uh, thanks to listening to John's Post-Life Crisis and Go Big Red. <laughs> go Big Red. And there you go. We're done. Now you can, cool. you can go respond to stuff. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, I enjoyed this. Yeah, you're a great interviewer. I really like, uh, like doing this. So. Oh, thank you. I, you know, I hope that other people recognize that and I get more downloads, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> I, I think so. I mean, you got a good style about you. You're, you're kind of just, just real folksy and relaxing. I like it a lot. So. All right, cool. cool. Then I, I'll, I'll bug you again at some point. Sounds good. Look forward to it. Look, Look forward take to care it. of yourself. Yeah, you too. You too. Good, 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 <laughs> right. Congratulations. That's great. Good, good stuff you're doing there. All right. Okay. Take care. You too. Bye. Yep. Bye-bye.